Welcome to the podcast of tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 106, released on February 20th, 2019. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice, including iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud, and do not miss the new episodes coming out at least weekly. Today we are going to talk about fintech in Lithuania, about Revolut and its standoff with the Lithuanian authorities, about the future of work and the funding for Malt, and much more. We also have a pre-recorded interview with Yulia Reda, MEP from the Pirate Party, with whom I talked last week about, guess what, the copyright directive. I'm your host, Andrei Degler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today as usual by our research lead, Natalie Novik, reporting from sunny, by the looks of it, Edinburgh. Hi, Natalie, how is it going? Hi, Andre. It's going great over here. We have had record warm temperatures so spring is officially here several weeks early. Record warm is like what, minus 10? <laughs> no, I think uh, this weekend we had 11 and we went to the beach and it was great. Did you swim? No, but there were other people braving the icy, cold birth of fort. Wow. I probably wouldn't do it even here in the Netherlands where the water probably is maybe like a couple of, uh, couple of degrees uh, warmer. No, no way. Anyway, uh, what was the biggest uh, deal of the week that you have seen? Yeah, so last week, the biggest deal was an acquisition. And we learned the classified ads platform Scout24 was acquired by Hellman and Friedman and the Blackstone Group for 4.9 billion euros, which was 11% higher than what the company was trading for at when the deal was announced. So when you have a 24 in the name, it usually points to it being a German company, just kind of a curious facet that you see very commonly from there. And Scout24 was most well known for their prop tech platform, Immobilian Scout24, and their Autotech sales platform, Autoscout24. Scout24 was also known in Berlin for hosting a number of tech meetups, and I did a hackathon. They're great immobile and scout offices in Berlin back in the day. So I hope after the acquisition, they can continue to be a big pillar of the community. But it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out with this new relationship. I've never thought about it, uh, about what you said about the number 24. But yeah, there is Home 24, which is this uh, uh, furniture or whatever uh, household uh, store. Do you have any idea why it's like this? I'm not sure, but it is very common um, in Germany to have 24 in the name. Interesting. Um, you see it happening there, um, whereas you don't. I can't think of an example outside of Germany with a 24 in the name. If anybody who's listening to us right now knows uh, why the number 24 is loved so much by German uh, startups, please go ahead and let us know on Twitter or by email, and we will definitely uh, read it out loud in the next episode. I'm really curious now. I'm going to Google it. <laughs> 
Okay, let's talk about the week in more detail. Uh, let's go to the stories and interviews. So I will start with uh, something that's more than one story, actually, but uh, there are a few connected things that I wanted to mention. And the things are e-money, fintech, Lithuania, and uh, uh, the company called Revolut. So starting from the country level, uh, Lithuania has quickly become a sought-after uh, destination for uh, fintech companies uh, with a no-deal Brexit being a dangerously realistic possibility. You might have noticed that there have been quite a few news stories about different companies applying for financial licenses in Lithuania. And according to a recent report by Reuters, about 100 uh, startups uh, or small and medium companies have applied for a financial license in the country. Actually, there were even bigger ones like uh, Google uh, a couple of months ago. And about 25 of these uh, 100 uh, applicants are coming uh, from the UK. And in case you missed the episode of the podcast, where we discussed the license for TransferWise in Belgium uh, recently. Uh, the idea here is that fintech companies need to get a license in at least one EU country in order to be able to offer its services across the continent. Uh, previously, most of these companies opted for a British license, but now it's uh, quite obviously becoming less useful by the day. It is actually a bit surprising to me uh, that so many companies seem to only have started worrying about uh, the whole thing just now, even though the writing on the wall has been quite visible for a while. And uh, one of the results of this influx of applications is a predictable delay in the processing. In that uh, Reuters report that I'm going to link in the show notes, the journalists talked to uh, Marius Jurgilas, the member of the board at the central bank. And he said that, uh, the quote begins, it seems that the companies, many of which are quite large, are behaving like a student who only starts worrying on the eve of an exam. The quote ends, and another part of the quote begins now. He also said, it is an onslaught. We do not have the resources to process all the applicants. We have to pick and choose, prioritizing the least risky applicants. The quote ends. He, of course, did not name the names of the companies that they picked and chose, but the situation is like this, and it might take longer than expected for many of these companies to receive licenses from Lithuania. Just to put things in context, Lithuania has this 100 or so applications pending, but in all the years before, uh, the country only had granted a total of 83 licenses. And that's a reasonable number in general, but it's less than the number of applications it's received just within a few months now. So it's quite understandable that uh, they are kind of choking and uh, are definitely over capacity. Now, while we are talking about this, it turns out that I somehow missed a related story uh, recently about one of the companies that has uh, received a banking license from the Bank of Lithuania. The company in question is Revolut, as I said in the beginning, and uh, this uh, is one of the first-tier European challenger banks uh, based in London. So Revolut got its uh, specialized banking license from uh, the Lithuanian bank in December. Uh, but at the same time, the company was criticized in the country due to its supposed ties to Russia. And the founder of Revolut, Nikolai Storonsky, uh, was indeed born in Russia. And it turns out that his father is a director at a division of Gazprom. And that's the Russian natural uh, gas giant uh, that's been on the U.S. sanctions list uh, since uh, 2014. 
The hard questions uh, came from uh, Stasis Yakilionas, uh, chair of the Lithuanian Parliament's Budget and Finance Committee. Back in December, he requested more information about Revolut's activities uh, from the Financial Crime Investigation Service and the State Security Department of Lithuania. And here is how he explained it. Uh, the quote begins, There are two reasons for this. The bank's business model and a public statement by one of the bank's top executives about how they intend to attract customers and issue loans based on fast and supposedly technological solutions. The quote uh, ends there, and there is also another interesting piece that he mentioned in that interview. Uh, the quote begins, Another piece of information that has appeared publicly is that the bank's shareholders may include persons linked to Russia's politics. I want this information either to be confirmed or denied. The quote ends. So, uh, while uh, Jekyll Jonas uh, was preparing to talk to the Bank of Lithuania about the license for Revolut and whether they wanted to withdraw it, and was also waiting for the information uh, from the security services and crime investigation services, Nikolai Staronsky himself, the CEO of Revolut, published an open letter to the Lithuanian media, in which he categorically denied any connection to Russian politics and also said, that DST Global, uh, one of the company's investors, doesn't have any investors from Russia. And that is technically true, I suppose. Uh, however, the founder of DST Global, uh, Yuri Milner, was actually born and raised in the USSR and used to be the CEO of Mail.ru Group, uh, one of Russia's biggest and oldest internet companies. And basically, he is one of the founding fathers, I would say, of uh, the Russian internet. And he has long-time connections to the country, even though right now he lives in the Silicon Valley. Well, anyway, uh, Yekil Jonas didn't uh, like this open letter by Staronsky at all and accused him of an attempt to intervene in the political processes in Lithuania. Here, what he said, another quote from him. It is our internal discussion, and it's not for the bank and its CEO to comment on that. The quote ends. He also said uh, that uh, Revolut was not forthcoming and transparent enough in their application uh, for the specialized uh, banking license in Lithuania. Now, this is how things stand right now, and it appears that this story can actually develop further in the next few weeks, but I would really be surprised, though, if Lithuania decided to withdraw the license from Revolut at a time when it keeps attracting more and more fintech companies uh, for its uh, licenses. Natalie, what's your take on this? What do you think? Yeah, I think Lithuania will have a hard time withdrawing the license for Revolut because it is such a huge company. And it's also one that is getting so much attention right now. And I think they really are trying to position themselves as a very friendly country for fintech. So I think it really would go against their current policy to, to withdraw it because it might send a signal to these other companies that are so eager to acquire banking licenses in Lithuania. Yeah, even though they might already be regretting giving this license in the first place. Anyway, the attention to Revolut wasn't all great recently, right? No, I think Revolut's been having kind of a difficult February, especially in light of some of these huge positive deals we've heard for Oak North and also for Starling Bank this week. But earlier this month, uh, Revolut received some tough criticism from the, the notoriously difficult UK press for their single shaming advert that they put in the London Underground. So right before Valentine's Day, Revolut put an advertisement for the, their company um, in the in the tube station, kind of like pointing out like, oh, for the 
individuals that have bought a single takeaway meal on Valentine's, like, and it said something like, are you okay, hun? And people really were turned off by it. And it, it was um, picked up on Twitter and it kind of took it from there. A lot of um, mainstream press took hold of, of this kind of big fumble from Revolut. Um, in their advertising. But what I understand is they've just hired a new C-suite level marketing professional. So hopefully these things will not happen in the future, but it did kind of hint at um, kind of a, a big misstep for them. Yeah, I think for me, a few problems with this uh, with this ad. First of all, it was a ripoff of an uh, earlier, or the idea of it was a ripoff of an earlier ad uh, by Spotify, right? Because they uh, they used to they used to have this uh, pretty good actually series of ads, also kind of uh, targeting uh, people with interest in music tastes and stuff like that. And I think that, that that was funny. But when a bank does it, it's a little bit less great. And I think it actually ended up at the end admitting that they did not have this data. That they just uh, they just made it all up. Exactly. So so what it kind of insinuated that they were able to take the um, transaction data and identify what purchases you made within that transaction data. So knowing that you ordered one meal on Valentine's Day instead of two meals. So I think it made them look really, really bad in that case when they had to explain it. They tried to host a Valentine's Day party for all the singles in London just as a way of like (laughs) deflecting it and making up for it. But all they really needed to say was, hey, it was a bad ad. We're sorry. We'll do a better job in the future. But they couldn't even do that. Yeah, it didn't get the attention for the right reasons, let's say. Yeah, there's certainly some pressure on the company right now. Well, let's see what happens after Brexit. For now, I will just keep using my normal bank here (laughs) here in the Netherlands. Anyway, what did you want to talk about today, uh, Natalie? Yeah, so this week I wanted to talk about a new 25 million euro investment in Malt, which is a French freelance matchmaking platform. So this is their third round of funding and it takes their total investment to 32 million euros. So Malt is an interesting company. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it was founded in 2013 as Hopwork. I don't know why they changed the name to Malt. Malt is a little bit confusing, um, whereas Hopwork is a bit more straightforward for the business that they're in. And they attracted their first round of funding in 2014. By October 2015, they had 10,000 freelancers on the platform. Today, they have over 100,000, working for about 15,000 steady clients. So with this new investment, they're really trying to position themselves as Europe's leading platform for matchmaking between freelancers and corporates. So in Europe, there are a few different competitors in this space, and maybe the best known of them is Twago.com from Berlin. Twago is an interesting case as well, and they've taken a slightly different direction. So they started around the same time as Hopwork, um, initially concentrating on the German-speaking market. And they really enjoyed a very strong opening market position. And so they used it to acquire some of the leading Spanish competitors, including Adtrivo in 2016. Then they were acquired later that year by Randstand for an undisclosed amount, as is the tradition in Germany. Acquisitions are very rarely publicly announced. So today, Twago has about 140,000 projects posted, and freelancers to the platform have earned over 600 million euros. So in comparison, Hopwork or Malt is hoping that this 
new funding deal will lead them to have over 1 billion euros in revenues for their community. In contrast to those two is Comet, which is a French freelancing platform. And rather than trawling a marketplace of freelancers, employers do not need to scan profiles and instead they can hire freelancers on demand. So that's kind of a contrast between between the two leading platforms. As of last summer, they had about 100 clients and attracted an 11 million euro Series A investment from OTM Venture and Daphne. And this follows a 2 million seed round that they attracted the year previously. But there are lots of different platforms that European freelancers use and also lots of different platforms that European companies use to find freelancers for their projects. And it's common for freelancers to be on multiple platforms at the same time. And that's part of the beauty of doing freelance work online. You can work for clients in multiple geographies and often choose projects you want to work on. Of course, there are some big downsides to freelancing, which I don't have the time to get into now, but it's worth mentioning that not everything is totally positive about this form of work. And why I think the investment in Malt is really interesting is that it's right in line with the direction of where the future of work is going, especially in Europe. Last summer, the European Commission put together a roundtable on the future of work, and one of their main conclusions was that freelancing facilitated through crowd employment by matching the supply and demand of labor through online platforms is a segment that's only going to continue to grow in Europe. Part of this is due to the growing capabilities of cloud businesses. However, freelance employment can be very precarious. Thankfully, strong social net in many European countries can make this kind of work more attractive. And speaking from experience here, it's much easier to be a freelance worker in a country that has a universal health system as compared to one that does not. So going back to Malt, in their company culture, they they take this position that, quote, talent must be independent to perform at its best, end quote. And freelancing and platforms like these that help to facilitate increased liquidity in the labor market really are able to do that. So I have a book chapter coming out later this year that finds increased liquidity in the labor market is one of the hallmarks that helped make California's growth outpace that of other states in the U.S. And it has the same opportunity to do this in Europe as well. So in the meantime, we find that the UK, France, and in the Netherlands, freelance work has outperformed the growth of more traditional types of employment. And according to a study by one professional organization, the number of freelancers in the European Union doubled between 2000 and 2014. While it is difficult to capture the amount of freelancers today, especially given the amount of side projects people are doing, Malt estimates the value of the freelance market in Europe at about 300 billion euros. So it's a really important space and one that's likely to grow and one that I'm going to continue to follow. It's interesting. I mean, I've been a freelancer for a pretty long time with a short uh, kind of period of being full-time employed. I've never heard of Malt. I've never heard of uh, Tobago, uh, for that matter, or Comet. I kind of... Are they very local? Like, why is it? I think part of the the problem is they really are focusing on um, their local national market. So France, Germany, and Spanish-speaking market. Tobago is is really dominant in Germany, um, in the dock markets, but also in Latin America and Spain. 
usually English speaking freelancers are using different sorts of platforms like freelancer.com, which comes from Australia, actually. So there's tons of different platforms and they really kind of align based on what kind of service the freelancer is providing. So there is yeah, that's also true. a lot of competition in this space. So we're really familiar with a top tall, for example, for technical development right. talent and different sorts of things like that. So really kind of exciting and competitive landscape here. Have you ever been on any of these platforms as a freelancer? I haven't, but it makes me think about what kind of possibility there is if I was going to get on these platforms. Um, it's something that I'm I'm not opposed to trying out. It's a lot of work, though, as far as I understand. It just takes you months and months and months to sort of establish your profile on one of these uh, things. I mean, for me, by now, it's just way easier to just uh, work with people I already know rather than uh, uh, looking for more orders, more uh, more business uh, coming from the platforms. Right. I've recently uh, read a piece about um, kind of these Upwork millionaires that were kind of regularly generating six figures or more on Upwork every year. And kind of the things that they were doing were what you might expect, kind of editing, copywriting, different sorts of design work that um, for some reason, they really stood out on that platform. So there's a, there's a marketing angle of how well you can market yourself as well, especially on these marketplaces. Um, how do you stand out against all of the other potential freelancers? So that, that's something that that is um, very interesting as well. Yeah. I'm also wondering whether these uh, millionaires have five to 10 people behind them that uh, uh, they don't really uh, speak about too loudly, but uh, who do uh, parts of the work. And that's something probably we're not going to figure out <laughs> anyway. But yeah, it is an interesting phenomenon. And for sure, it's going to uh, get uh, then the number is going to get higher and higher on that. Uh, what I also wanted to say, by the way, is that I think it's not only people uh, willing increasingly to work as freelancers, but also organizations uh, uh, trying to be more flexible and uh, hiring part-time or freelance workforce rather than actually employing people full-time. Okay, let's move on to the next uh, topic that we already talked about at length uh, last week, and that's the copyright directive that uh, made its way uh, through the trilogues. Uh, in the European Commission uh, last week. So uh, after the trilogues were over and the final version of the directive was published, I talked to Julia Reda, uh, the member of European Parliament from the Pirate Party, the only one actually, about uh, the directive itself, about uh, who benefits uh, from its uh, uh, current uh, version and uh, about what is going to happen next and whether there are ways to make uh, the whole thing better. Uh, check out the interview. We'll be back in a minute. Hello, this is Andre Degler at tech.eu catching up today with Julia Reda, the member of European Parliament, about uh, the recent developments uh, in the copyright directive. So, uh, Julia, hi, uh, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to uh, talk to me today. Could you please start with uh, telling a bit more about your own background and uh, how did you actually end up in the European Parliament and what do you want to achieve as one, as a member of it? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, pleasure to be here. So I was elected to the European Parliament for the Pirate Party, which is a pretty new party. It was first uh, founded in 2006 in Sweden, and it's a party that fights for digital rights. We think that uh, digital technology is so important for a society that it should really be at the center of politics. And um, increasingly, I think people are realizing that. But a lot of the proposals that we see on internet regulation are actually um, counterproductive and are bad for fundamental rights online. So I was elected um, in Germany in 2014. And since then, uh, the pirate parties have grown all over Europe. So in the next European Parliament, there will probably be a few more of us. And my personal uh, focus has always been copyright because I think this is really uh, one of the central questions, who has access to information and knowledge and culture in a world where basically everything can be copied at next to no cost. Right. So what did you do before uh, you came to the parliament and what's your uh, main goal right now? Uh, I was a student of political science. I finished my degree and was elected immediately after that. And I was a uh, internet freedom activist. Like I participated, for example, in organizing the protests against the ACTA Treaty in 2012 that was ultimately rejected by the European Parliament. And uh, this experience with ACTA has also given me hope that um, the European Parliament can be the voice of the people and of internet rights. And so my goal at the moment is that before the elections in May, the European Parliament will reject the upload filters and uh, the link tax, which are the most harmful elements of this copyright directive that was now uh, agreed and negotiated. And before we dive into the depths of the directive, just one more question about you being a member of the Pirate Party. So what is your general uh, stance on the copyright? Is it like the anarchist uh, sort of thing that copyright should be abolished and we all should be able to use everything for free or is it more moderate? Well, I think on the one hand, there is the philosophical uh, side of the Pirate Party where we think that copying of creative works and information should be free and we should find different ways in society to actually reward creators and make sure they have fair payment. But on the other hand, there is the pragmatic side. What do we actually want to change right now with the existing laws? And there it's a lot more moderate. So my goal in the parliament has been to change from 28 different national copyright laws into in the EU to one European copyright law that is actually simple, easy to understand, and takes the interests of internet users and also of the individual creators into account. Currently, everybody is breaking copyright law on a daily basis because the law is completely crazy and impossible to understand. So, for example, whether you are allowed to do a meme or to quote or to do a parody is different in every European country. We don't have anything like fair use in the United States that kind of generally allows non-commercial uses that don't hurt the copyright holders. Instead, we have these very specific copyright exceptions and nobody knows for sure what they are allowed to do and what not. And this is really what I'm trying to change. 
Understood. So now that we understand uh, where uh, everybody comes from, uh, let's uh, talk a bit about uh, the directive itself. So I've just given uh, quite a bit of context uh, about uh, the directive to our listeners over the past uh, few weeks. So I guess we can just start with the latest news. And we are taping this interview uh, on uh, the 14th of February on Thursdays, the day after the trilogues had finally ended. So how did the trilogues go? What did they end with? I wonder, why did it take so long, actually? Yeah, I think it wouldn't have been necessary to basically negotiate for three days straight when at the end the outcome is basically a uh, secret deal that was negotiated between the national governments of Germany and France last week. So the European Parliament has not really improved this deal that Germany and France have made and have gotten a majority for in council. Um so uh, to adopt this copyright directive, both uh, the councils or the national governments and the European Parliament need to agree. And despite these very long negotiations, there have not been any fundamental changes to this text. So this means upload filters are part of the proposal and um, pretty much all commercial online platforms would have to use these filters as soon as they are older than three years. And uh, this includes, you know, one person, micro businesses um, and other really small platforms. Uh, also, the link tax is still included. This means that um, taking relatively small parts of news articles, such as one sentence that are not uh, protected by copyright, would require a license from a press publisher. So it's a pretty bad deal. And um, I think, well, why did it take so long? I think primarily because some of the negotiators of parliament were trying to make it even worse after some media companies had said that uh, they don't think the proposal is extreme enough. Wow. That's interesting. So, and you uh, were saying before uh, that Germany is actually getting a pretty bad deal out of this uh, compromise solution that it's uh, agreed on with France. Uh, why is that? So Germany started out with a pretty sensible position. Their coalition agreement says that uh, while they want fairer payment for rights holders, they completely reject upload filters as a disproportionate measure against copyright infringement. So pretty good starting position. However, they never actually um, really fought for this in the council. Instead, they asked to just have an exception for small companies. So companies that are um, below an annual turnover of uh, two, uh, 20 million euros. Um, France did not want to have such an exception for small businesses. The European Parliament actually did. So uh, the European Parliament position included such a small business exception. So uh, Germany and France apparently locked themselves in a room and tried to negotiate a deal that they both could live with. And what they came up with is a new exception that covers nobody. Um, it only covers platforms that fulfill all three of the following criteria. First, uh, they have to have uh, an annual turnover below 10 million, so half of what Germany asked for. In addition, they have to have fewer than 5 million monthly uh, unique visitors. And thirdly, they have to be younger than three years old. And if you take these three criteria together, you find that even the smallest, most niche platforms like social network for specific hobbies or things like that uh, would not benefit from this exception. 
And even if a platform is completely new and is so small that they don't have to use upload filters, they would still be required to negotiate a license with copyright holders who ask them to. So nobody is off the hook under this deal. And fr uh, France has completely won the discussion with Germany. Uh, Germany is in clear breach of its coalition agreement and has not even been able to get this small business exception they wanted. And since I'm not really uh, well-versed in uh, uh, how the whole uh, EU dealings work, can you please explain one thing? Why is it actually Germany and France ending up pretty much deciding the fate uh, of the directive? Is it because their sheer size? That's a very good question. I mean, formally speaking, Germany and France do not have the ability to block a decision in the EU. Um, so in order for a law to pass, there needs to be a simple majority in the parliament, so more yes votes than no votes, and there needs to be a qualified majority in the council. That means there have to be at least 55% of the countries in favor, that's 16 countries, and uh, they have to represent six, uh, 65% of the population. So uh, in order to block a deal, if several countries get together that represent 35% of the population, uh, they can say no to an agreement. And um, Germany and France together are not actually capable of this. So what happened was there are a number of countries like the Netherlands and Italy that are categorically opposed to the proposal. Like they don't want upload filters, they don't want the link tax, and they would vote no under all circumstances. And um, Germany uh, for a while was also voting against because they required this small business exception. And um, so council was considering giving them that exception. But then France said, no, if you do that, then we will vote against. So there was a deadlock that basically either Germany or France would vote against. Um, and so the uh, council was unable to make a decision until these two countries make a deal with each other. But this is not how sh uh, politics should work. I mean, um, it shouldn't be two countries secretly negotiating something and everybody else then just agreeing to it. But this is essentially what has happened in the council. And now it's up to the European Parliament to vote this deal down. So then another really small diversion. Does it actually mean that after Brexit, Germany and France will have even more uh, power, uh, negotiation power uh, within uh, the parliament? Unfortunately, yes. Um, I think the supporters of Brexit have been lying to the people. They have always been claiming that the EU is imposing all kinds of laws on them that they don't want. But in fact, the UK is extremely powerful in the EU because it's one of the largest countries. And quite often, it has been able to organize an opposition to Germany and France. So uh, there are some... Uh, political questions where you have more liberal countries like the Netherlands, like Scandinavia or the Baltic states that alone don't have a lot of power, but were able to kind of rally behind the UK and negotiate uh, for a compromise. Once the UK is gone, basically Germany and France will be able to block legislation on their own. Uh, they will represent more than 35% of the, of the population. And uh, I think this is really, well, a, a very f unfortunate outcome of Brexit. And I hope it doesn't happen. Yes, indeed. 
Then let's get back to the directive itself. Uh, can you uh, explain one thing? In one of your uh, blog posts, you mentioned that there are those uh, powerful special interests uh, that certain politicians uh, might be uh, working for instead of the interests of the people. So what are they and who are the main lobbyists uh, uh, for the current version of both Article 13 and Article 11? So in the case of Article 11, the link text, this is pretty easy to answer because this has more or less been an invention by a German press publisher Axel Springer, which is a newspaper publisher that not only owns the largest tabloid in Germany, but also has a presence in many other European countries and actually has an extremely profitable online business. And they have somehow uh, been able to convince politicians that uh, all the small newspapers who are having to lay off journalists are behind this proposal and uh, that it's kind of needed to save the financing of the press. And um, we know from experience in Germany that actually the link tax has had disastrous effects. Germany introduced it already in 2013. It has made Google even more powerful and it has not brought any profits uh, to press publishers at all. Uh, in the case of Article 13, the upload filters, it's a bit more more complicated. I think the two biggest players there are the music industry and uh, the film industry. So Hollywood um, and uh, also the collecting societies representing uh, music and film. And um, music and film rights holders have slightly different um, uh, interests. Uh, the music industry primarily wants the large platforms to make uh, deals with the rights holders to pay them in order for uh, people to be able to upload music legally. And they think that the upload filters will be uh, giving them more negotiating weight when they negotiate licenses with the platforms. I mean, what we sometimes uh, forget is that uh, Facebook and Google actually do have licenses for music. They do pay uh, the music rights holders. The rights holders just think that they don't pay enough. So if they have this threat of um, mandatory upload filters and liability, they think they will get more money. Um, with the film industry, Hollywood in particular, it's different. They don't want their films to show up on YouTube or Facebook. They want them to be blocked. So they really want the upload filters in order to be able to uh, block their material from being uploaded in the first place. And of course, they don't mind if the upload filters overblock and actually also catch things like legal quotations and so on, because they they're not going to start defending the rights of users uh, for freedom of expression. Understood. This, this kind of makes sense, I guess. And uh, in this case, another question. I've been uh, reading your uh, Twitter over the past few days for the latest news over the directive. And in the replies, a bunch of people posted uh, this link to an article on uh, TechDirt that uh, suggests an interesting thing, that uh, the idea is that Article 13, and to a lesser extent Article 11, uh, were specifically designed to be so bad uh, that the internet companies would have to sign kind of licensing agreements in bulk uh, with the copyright yeah. holders, like in one big yeah. sort of deal. What's your take on this? Yeah, I think this is a plausible theory. Uh, I mean, with upload filters in particular, everybody who knows a bit about technology knows that it's impossible to build an upload filter that can actually distinguish copyright infringements from legal content. And uh, I think the media companies know this as well. So they give platforms a choice to either develop a technology that is pretty much impossible or to pay them. 
So um, I think this is a plausible theory. But the problem with this is, of course, that um, this idea, this plan only takes into account large rights holders and large platforms. Um, they, even if they are successful and they make deals with all the big players, they will probably not be interested in giving fair license conditions to startups or to new platforms that would maybe one day grow up to be a competition to the likes of YouTube. So um, I think the diversity on the net will suffer. We'll have fewer large, uh, fewer small platforms um, that could grow up, and we will have. Um, problems for independent creators who are not represented by one of the large labels or collecting societies. And going back to the text of the directive itself, I uh, looked through the previous versions and a little bit over the current version. And one of the things that I uh, see there, maybe it's normal, you tell me, but it looks extremely vague in certain parts. All these uh, definitions, like uh, very short uh, snippets or large amounts of copyright protected works and stuff like that. Is it supposed to be this way? Um, so this is a directive. So this means that every member state in the EU needs to uh, transpose this directive into their national law. So they have to comply with everything the directive says, but they are able to make it more specific. For example, to define what a very short snippet is or uh, to define what is a best effort and all these vague terms. So as such, this is not so unusual But of course, in an area like this, where um, you have startup companies, where you have non-commercial uh, platforms, independent creators, this is causing a lot of legal uncertainty. And um, I think, yeah, this is not a very well-drafted proposal. And some of the vague terms were put in there because the different sides were unable to agree. Uh, so one way of forging a compromise between opposing positions is to just write something that everybody can interpret the way they want it. I understand now. Uh, but then it means uh, that uh, uh, these uh, sort of member states being able to interpret uh, the directive in their own ways goes straight against uh, the goal that you stated at the beginning of this interview Absolutely. that uh, you really want to get uh, a copyright uh, law that's uh, unified for the whole European Union. Yeah, I mean, this is the great irony of the entire proposal. The European Commission started this copyright reform saying that their goal is to create a digital single market. So to allow um, technology companies in Europe to grow and to scale and to offer their services across the entire EU. This will, of course, be completely impossible if different rules apply to them in 28 different countries. So this is completely counterproductive. I see. So what uh, what happens now? What should we be looking forward to and what can be done uh, to make it better or block it or do whatever uh, there is? So the negotiated outcome now needs to be uh, approved one final time by the council, the national governments, and by the parliament. Uh, the council is very likely to approve it because they already approved it last week and there weren't a lot of changes. So it's much more likely that the European parliament will reject it. So I'm now calling upon everybody um, who is able to vote in the EU to make this really crucial for their voting decision 
decision in May uh, to tell their representatives and their candidates that they are going to vote and that they will not support a candidate uh, who supports upload filters or the link tax. In the past, the European Parliament has rejected this proposal once before. It finally passed with a really slim uh, majority on upload filters in September. So I think we can still stop it in the final vote that will probably take place sometime in April. Well, this creates a certain hope. Now, Julia, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for uh, taking uh, time uh, for to talk to me uh, today. Uh, good luck uh, with everything. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot for being here. Thanks a lot. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu number 106. I hope you liked the interview with Julia Reda that you've just uh, listened to. And uh, while we're on this, I just wanted to uh, mention one thing that happened after I talked to Julia still on uh, Friday, I think, uh, last week. The European Commission uh, posted a uh, piece on Medium. Uh, there is a Medium account. Uh, it's called European Commission. You can Google it. So the piece was a pretty long one and it kind of explained the point of view of the European Commission towards the copyright directive, but also it used a certain language that wasn't exactly great uh, towards uh, uh, people who uh, did not support uh, the copyright directive in its current version. I'm going to link to the web archive page uh, with this uh, post because uh, the post itself was uh, subsequently removed by the European Commission staff and uh, uh, the Vice President of the European Commission uh, also said that he had nothing to do with it, which is an, kind of an interesting thing. Nobody really understands uh, who wrote uh, this post, at least I don't understand for sure. And also there were two different uh, sort of takedown notes that appeared uh, on that Medium account. Uh, the first one uh, that uh, uh, was posted right after the post was removed read this way, quote, we have removed this article as it has been understood in a way that doesn't reflect the commission's position. So just to translate from English to English, it's kind of, it kind of means you all just misunderstood this article, which is why we decided uh, to remove it. That's it. Right now, the takedown note says something different, but still in the same ballpark. Another quote, we acknowledge that its language and title were not appropriate, and we apologize for the fact that it has been seen as offending. Well, the title of the article was uh, this, The Copyright Directive, How the Mob Was Told to Save the Dragon and Slay the Knight. So I do encourage you to still follow the archive link and uh, read uh, uh, the article just to see what sort of uh, point of view uh, the European Commission uh, has towards the copyright directive. Anyway, I think we have spent a lot of time already uh, talking about this regulation. I still do hope that uh, something bad happens to it uh, by uh, uh, March or April. But it is time to move on uh, towards the events part. Uh, Natalie, what should we be looking forward to? Well, first, everyone should be looking forward to Tech Chill in Riga, which we have talked about on the podcast at length, but I'm looking forward to seeing you, Andre, um, and for us both to be speaking um, panels this week in Riga. Next week, I'm really excited to be speaking to my local ecosystem here in Edinburgh on the 27th of February on a topic that's very close to my heart, going global. Um, and I can't wait. It's for um, the FutureX um, community organization, and it's one that's very close to my heart and has a huge positive influence here in Edinburgh. So looking forward to speaking to everyone there. And of course, on the podcast already, we've talked a lot about Tech Chill and Mobile Sunday. 
But the big event for the rest of this month, of course, takes place in Barcelona, which is four years from now, and the Mobile World Congress. Those are held between the 25th and 28th of February. And here I also wanted to make an announcement for something that's also really great. And I wanted to encourage everyone that is applicable to to apply for the Female Founder Challenge, which is put on by 50 in Tech and Viva Tech. So if you're not a female founder, please reach out to female founders you know to apply. Applications are open now for their pitch contest, which will be held at Viva Tech in Paris in May. And you can apply through the link in our show notes. So if you're looking for more things to do this month, check out the event section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, let us know at the link in the show notes. Nice. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to Tech Chill. And uh, for everybody listening to this, if you happen to be in Riga on uh, Friday at Tech Chill, uh, find us. We're going to be taping the next episode of the podcast and we could definitely use some audience, right? <laughs> that would be great. It's going to be three of us, uh, uh, Natalie, Robin and myself. And uh, I believe it's going to be really interesting. I do feel that uh, things go different when we uh, record uh, just sitting, uh, sitting in the same room. Yeah, it makes things definitely a lot easier. And I think that the rapport is a little bit better, but we do the best that we can. We are a, a distributed team here at tech.eu. When we get rich and have the budgets, we will just fly to meet every week. Anyway, let's move on to the recommendation part of the podcast about uh, books and stories and uh, other podcasts and whatever else we wanted to share with the audience. I will start uh, with a piece on The Verge by uh, Josh Ziza about uh, CAPTCHAs, uh, which, if you ever wondered, uh, turns out to uh, stand for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. It's a pretty loose abbreviation, I have to say. There are quite a few extra words that did not actually make it into the uh, letters of the word CAPTCHA, but whatever. So the piece is titled uh, Why CAPTCHAs Have Gotten So Difficult. And that's uh, definitely a point that I have been feeling myself. I mean, I have made mistakes in uh, CAPTCHAs dozens of times recently, and I'm bone tired of searching for tiles with traffic lights or shop windows or whatever there is. But the underlying problem, of course, is quite simple. Machines are actually becoming better than humans in recognizing objects or letters or anything else that is thrown at them. Uh, there is also no way if you think about it, that we're going to end up with a capture that a machine will never be able to solve. So it's always going to be a question of time and it's going to also it's going to be sort of an arm race between people who invent new captures and people who want to break them. So the piece I'm linking to uh, in the show notes takes a look at the history of capture as a concept and the possible ways for it to develop further. I don't want to spoil it, but there are uh, quite a few funny uh, things in there. So definitely go and uh, check it out. And Natalie, what is your link for today? Yeah, so my link for today is the state of remote survey that 2009 that was done by Buffer. More future of work. Yay. Right. Yeah. So I really want to stay in this theme of the future of work. And Buffer is a really cool social media management company, and they're, they're super unique because they're entirely remote. So they've grown and scaled over the past years, and they've always done this by being completely remote. It's something that is really strong in their value. 
And it's hard to get really good data on remote work and especially distributed teams. So they've really invested a lot of time to really understand what are some of the best practices and to do some good research on remote workers. And as I mentioned before, TechEU, of course, is a largely remote company as well. So the past few years, they've been doing a survey to analyze some of the trends in remote working. And it includes a lot of different types of workers from self-employed people to freelancers to people working in remote teams all around the world. And as the data is pretty limited and hard to get for the population, they've really had to do their best um, to get some, some robust results here. But what they found, and maybe unsurprisingly, is a majority of people choose work remotely for the flexible schedule. And there's lots of other benefits, including being able to work from anywhere in the world, but also the availability of having increased time with your family. Um, But they also found some keen downsides as well to remote work. So remote workers struggle often with unplugging after work. Work doesn't ever really seem to end when you live at your workplace, as well as loneliness. Loneliness this was something that that came up pretty frequently in the responses that it can be very isolating um, if you're working from basically anywhere by yourself. So the study finds lots of interesting findings. So if you're interested in remote work or interested in developing a remote team, trying to follow these future of work trends, I encourage you to have a look at that. Yeah, that's what I always uh, uh, say when people uh, tell me that freelancing has a, is great because you have a flexible schedule. There is no such thing as after work. There's no such thing as before work. You just you wake up, you get your phone or your laptop, and you're already at work. And then at 3 p.m., you uh, suddenly remember that you needed to uh, get a breakfast or take a shower. That's uh, that's how freelancing works. Right, and, and it can also be hard to get outside the house and kind of to work on developing a community. So I really understand what they're saying with loneliness. Um, And I like that they're kind of pushing some of these topics and encouraging us to think about them. Because as I mentioned previously, with this increasing trend towards freelance work and more and more people taking on freelance work, it's something that I think will become a greater concern for, for companies in the future. So managing those aspects of of your remote worker's life is something that's really important. Because one thing they also found, they asked about time off. And many of the freelancers that responded said they, well, they had kind of unlimited time off or they were up to them, (laughs) but no one was taking it. And this is not too surprising if you're a remote worker. Um, You'll know very well, but something that definitely we should develop our thinking on and something we've talked about on the podcast before. It's also a question of self-discipline, right? Like if you... Just say, okay, I'm not going to work weekends. I'm not going to work for a year uh, without uh, taking any time off at all. So this just kind of has to be sort of a self-restraint exercise, which doesn't work for me. I mean, it just, uh, it, it never happens. I can uh, I can say anything I want and then I end up uh, Sunday night uh, writing stuff or something like that. Yeah. And, and, part, and sometimes remote work, it also facilitates this always on kind of tendencies. I remember a few years ago, I I was doing a a project for a company and I was actually responding to different requests while I was at Disneyland with my family. Um, And that kind of is the the other side of the coin there. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to work for this organization if it was one that I had to kind of live and work in the office with them, but still 
whereas how do you draw that line? It's something that, that can be very tenuous. Well, I have to say, I'm still pretty happy as a freelancer, and I do think it was a great choice to do things this way. Anyway, it is time for us to wrap it up uh, for today. This is it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to us today. Do not miss our new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify or SoundCloud. Just look for tech.eu podcast. Please leave us a review on iTunes uh, if that's where you take your podcast. This will help others find it and will mean a lot for ourselves. Please tell everyone you know about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any questions suggestions and opinions at uh, andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu remember if you know anything about that number 24 for german startups let us know natalie thank you so much for joining today thank you andri and and also please reach out to us on twitter we're both on there as well and um, if you will have a chance to join us um, in riga for tech chill or if you have anything or comments suggestions or things that make you cringe about the podcast let us know so we can continue to make it the best as possible so hope to speak to you in person real soon natalie enjoy the rest of your week and we're gonna talk to everyone next wednesday bye 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 Thank you.